The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cavell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Al batting. Casey Cavell. Dugout Nation feels like opening day. Today, I am joined by Mike Moy. Mike is a sports agent, attorney, and founder of Moy Sports. Mike earned his undergraduate degree at Georgia Tech and law degree at Emory University School of Law. And in 1993, Mike moved to Atlanta, Georgia and founded Moy Sports, an agency that has represented Major League Baseball MVPs, All-Stars, and has negotiated over $500 million dollars worth of contracts. Mike, welcome to the Dugout CEO podcast. Thanks, Casey. It's great to be here. Yeah, I've been excited for this since you booked a couple of weeks ago, and I can't tell the listeners the impact that you've had in my life. And I think we met, I was a young 20-something that either in his mind had it all figured out or was too scared to admit that he didn't. And you came alongside of me and helped me so much. So I'm so glad you know, our listeners are going to be able to get to know you a little bit. Man, I, me too. You've been a blessing to me, Casey, and I'm very thankful for the for the way we met. Yeah, likewise. So tell me more about your baseball background. I know everybody knows you as a, an agent, all your accomplishments, but like growing up, how'd you get into baseball? Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. I always enjoyed playing sports, but was never very good at it. So I guess by the time I got out of high school, I realized that my sports career was probably coming to a coming to a halt. But I got interested in what was at the time a very burgeoning, you know, new industry, kind of like the wild, wild west called sports agency. And back then we didn't have the internet. We had, you know, the newspaper and I'd pick up the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, pull out the sports page, give my dad the rest of it. And then I would read the sports page from cover to cover. And, and this was in, you know, the mid seventies. And I would start reading these articles about you know, and some, some of which were good, some of which weren't good, like, you know, notorious agents that had taken, you know, advantage of professional athletes, but more, mostly just intrigued by the, by the, the pioneers like a Bob Wolf or a Marvin Demoff or Lee Steinberg, Steinberg, who were out representing players against, at the time, millionaire owners, they're now all billionaire owners. And, and I started thinking, well, you know, that might be a way that I could stay in the game because, you know, while I can't, like, I'm not good enough to, to play professionally or even collegiately, I, I'm, I might give this a shot at, at representing players. And that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, the beginnings of it all. I love it. So what was that thing leading up to, we all have that moment maybe where it's like, Hey, I made it. Like I had a goal. I accomplished it. Like talk to me about what that thing was that you were like, hey, wow, this worked. And what were all the things leading up to that point? Well, so it's interesting because one of the questions that, you know, that you, you have for your listeners is, or one of the, one, one, yeah, I guess one of the questions is, do you have any home runs you'd like to share? And in thinking about that question, you know, I can, I can say that I've got a lot of home runs out there. Also can honestly say that I didn't have a whole lot to do with any of them. But the one that kind of stood out at the beginning was a meeting that I had with a mentor, a college coach by the name of Bill Curry, who at the time was the head coach of the University of Alabama. 
Well, years earlier, Bill had, who's a friend of the family, had agreed to kind of help me try to get into the sports agency business. And Bill had played at the highest levels. He was an all-pro center, played for the Baltimore Colts and the Green Bay Packers. His coaches included Don Shula and Vince Lombardi. He snapped the ball to Hall of Fame quarterbacks like Bart Starr. I gave it a shot at being a sports agent on my own for about four years with Bill kind of helping and introducing me to some players along the way. Well, at the end of four years, I reached the conclusion that this is just not going to work. I had had a victory or two, but mostly disappointments and failures. And when I started in the industry, I was single. It was just me. And I was able to you know, weather a lot of storms. But by the time I got married, 1987, I realized that I was going to have to be more of a realist about this and it was time to kind of move on. So I called Bill, asked him for a meeting. He was the head coach of Alabama at the time. I drove to Tuscaloosa and sat down and said, Bill, I just wanted to thank you for all the help that you've been giving me over the years. But I wanted to let you know that I'm, I'm getting out of the out of the attempt to be a sports agent and gave him the reasons why. And he said, well, it's funny that you came this week, Mike, because earlier this week, I got a call from my agent. His agent was a guy named Robert Fraley, a star in the business and a man of very high integrity, very well known in the industry as being a, a, a super agent, but a very straight shooter. He said, I got a call from my agent asking me if there was anybody that I could recommend to interview for a job that had come up in his agency that was a pretty important position. And Bill looked at me and said, would you like to interview for the job? And I said, absolutely. And I interviewed for the job of Robert Fraley. And six months later, I was had moved my family from Atlanta to Orlando, Florida, which is where Robert's firm was based. And for five years, I was immersed in the highest levels of representing professional athletes, particularly football and baseball players. And that was the home run that I just walked into it. It's like, the timing was unbelievable, and even to this day, I just go, I can't, I can't believe how amazing that turned out to be. Sure. Going back to something you mentioned earlier, you said you had a lot of home runs, but you had very little to do with a lot of them. What did you mean by that? Well, going back to my background, so I didn't play professionally. I didn't play collegiately. I didn't have a dad who was a, you know, famous coach. I just didn't have any connections, so to speak, other than, you know, knowing Bill and the help that he gave me. But as I moved forward in my career, particularly after I left Leader Enterprises down in Orlando and came back to Atlanta and ended up starting Moy Sports, I got the opportunity to represent some of the best athletes in the world. And I look back on it and I just don't believe that it was, you know, I did work hard and I did prepare, but I think there was something else there and I attribute it to the Lord, but there was something else there that had to connect the dots. It just didn't make sense that I was able to represent the type of players I was representing all home runs. Sure. 
you know, and, and I did a good job for him. I hit the ball out of the park, but it's like to say that I did it would be in my mind, disingenuous. Sure. And I've known you surround yourself with some really amazing people as well. And I know they've made a huge impact on you when you go work hard in preparation. What does that actually look like for you? Well, you know, for me, just from a X's and O's standpoint, it's trying to know who I'm negotiating with on the other side of the table, but also knowing the strengths and weaknesses of my own client as it relates to the marketplace that, that we're dealing with. And it's just drilling deep, drilling deep, drilling deep, trying to get the last piece of information, turn the last rock over so that when you walk into a negotiation, you're not, you know, it's not winging it. It's you, you, your, your, your confidence comes in the amount of information that you have about the situation and your client and the conviction that gives you of what your clients were. Father. In one of these things, I remember we went to Ted's Montana grill. This was gosh, I don't know how long ago, eight years ago. I brought three of my best buddies that were going through. We were all on our 20 somethings trying to figure it out. And you gave me this piece of advice in all of us, which was, I think it was, you know, when other people, you know, their, their intensity is going up, you bring yours down. Do you remember that? And share a little bit more what you meant by that. Okay. Well, I, I put that kind of under the section that you call chin music. Got it. Okay. And that is, you know, what, to, what, what, you know, would be maybe a little bit contrarian to what most people think and do. And my, my former employer, Robert Fraley, sent me early on to a, a negotiation symposium two weeks at Harvard, taught by a man named Roger Fisher, who wrote a book called Getting to Yes. I recommend it. It doesn't matter. Any, any, any area of life that you're in, you're negotiating, whether you know it or not, with your wife, with your children, with your boss, with the supplier on the other side of the table. I mean, you're, life's one big negotiation. And I love the principles of getting the yes. But one of the principles that stuck with me the hardest from that two weeks was tough on the issues, but respectful of the people. I think that's a bit of a contrarian style of negotiation. Most people, when they think of negotiations, they think of Donald Trump, you know, kill the other side, zero sum game, leave no prisoners. That's how you get what you want. And the, the whole concept of getting the yes is don't accept the size of the pie. Look for ways to make it better and bigger. Well, getting back to that conversation that we had over dinner, anytime in a negotiation, when the other side like starts getting overheated, Okay, what do you do? What do you do when your car gets overheated? You, you push down on the gas pedal and push it harder? No, it's going to blow the engine. When the car starts getting overheated, the best thing to do is shut the car off. And so this hasn't happened a lot in my career, but there's been a few times when the other side, the engine's gotten really, really overheated. And I just have to say, you know, Mr. So-and-so, I understand you're frustration in, in this situation. I share frustrations, but at the end of the day, what we're dealing with here is business issues. And we have a business disagreement and 
you know, we're charged with solving it. And right now, I think the best thing we can do towards solving that business disagreement is take a timeout. Things are getting a little too heated. Let's just take a timeout. Talk tomorrow. If there's a deadline that night, talk in 30 minutes. And, you know, that usually, I mean, actually, every time I've ever had to do that, it's pushed a reset button that's enabled to get you to get back on the issues. Because what happens when you things get overheated is you get off the issues. And now it becomes personal. And so now we're dealing with a whole lot more. We've already got a problem on our hands. Why do we want to create more problems? So that's an easy problem to solve is let, let's get off the personal stuff. And so if we have to take a timeout, you take a timeout. It's great. And, you know, one of the things that I often do with people that I work with now is try to figure out the real issue behind the issue. So when people do get heated, whether it's in business or a negotiation or it's a player or whatever, what have you found the real reasons are that people do get heated? Because I don't know if, I know I don't work well when I'm heated. I'm more acting on emotion rather than logic. What do you see the reasons are that people do lose their composure or get heated? Well, there's lots of different reasons. Usually it's when they're not getting their way and, and they just get frustrated to the point of, you know, they may be, they may think you're being unreasonable. Well, then maybe you are, maybe I am being unreasonable. I don't know. I need to take a time out and kind of look at it. Say, okay, but I don't think I'm being unreasonable. And, you know, the most powerful word in the English language, the most powerful word in the negotiations is no, no. But it's also the word that can create the most tension. Got it. I love that. Well, thank, thanks, Mike. And I think it, getting in your head, and I definitely want to link the show notes to, what is it, getting to yes? Getting to yes. Definitely. Roger Fisher. Got it. We're definitely going to link that in the show notes. Now, let's talk about some of the players that you've managed. Yes, getting them the contracts, getting them, you know, all the things that they need to be successful, great. But I think, I think a big part of what you do is just helping, you know, the, your clients on the field, but also off the field. Everybody listening to this is a leader at some point, whether they're leading their family or leading their business. How did you go about leading the people that you were entrusted with to help them win both on and off the field? Well, that's a good question because, you know, when you're leading someone, you want to be leading them to a better experience, leading them to being stronger. And sometimes when you're leading someone, in fact, I've had situations before where, you know, clients have actually fired me over refusing to do what they want me to do. But the reason for the refusal was because it wasn't in their best interest to do what they wanted to do. And so you try to lead them towards doing the right thing, you know, just do the right thing. And that can be hard sometimes, but that's, that's probably the major principle there is just the, is, is you're, you're leading them towards better. So if I'm hearing this right, at some point in your career, a client asked you to do something. And as a result, you knew in your heart of hearts, that wasn't going to help them get where they wanted to go. You said no, and you lost a client or potentially money because of that, correct? That's correct. That's tough. And how do you, how do you deal with that? Because people listen to this, they might have decision one, decision two, decision one, lose money, lose a client, decision 
to do the right thing. It, how do you balance that? Well, the balance is in my life is do the right thing and, you know, keep a strong eye on, on the, the, the human pull towards, towards justification for, you know, for self and, and for, for, for self, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, gratification. Gratification. Yes. For self gratification and money's your chief thing and that that, that's so easy to justify or to fudge or to, you know, but look, if, at the end of the day, if you don't make money, your your God and you're serving people for the right reasons, money will come. And, and even if it doesn't, that's okay. You know, life's short. You got to wake up every morning, look at yourself in the mirror. If money's the main thing, then... You're going to wake up one day and you're going to have no friends. You may have a lot of money, but you're going to have a lot of heartache. So, you know, I, yes, I've walked away from situations where it probably cost me a dollar or two, but that's okay. Yeah. Got it. You do the right thing. Got it. Well, let's get into some baseball stuff. You have so many great baseball stories. You got the, Hank Aaron home run story. You got the all-star game home run derby in Yankee stadium. You got players that are playing against each other in the world series. Is there a, a fun story or baseball experience that you'd like to share with you know, our listeners that you think they get a kick out of? Well, I, I do want to tell the listeners about my, one of the, one of your questions was who was your baseball hero growing up? Please. And my hero growing up was Hank Aaron. Cause I grew up in Atlanta during the era when Hank was about to break Babe Ruth's 714 long held home run record. And it was the, about the only excitement we had because the Braves weren't a very good team, but Hank was, you know, the best player in the league and one of the best players of all times. And so I'm trying to remember the year, this might've been 1973. It was apparent that he was, was going to break the record and maybe even in that season. Unfortunately, there were a very, very much a minority, but there was a, a loud minority of knuckleheads who didn't want Hank Aaron to break the record because he was African-American and they were redneck. That really got under my skin as a 14 year old. Like, how can you, you know, what, how, what are you thinking? Like, this is ridiculous. And so I called the Braves. <laughs> That's 14 years old. I called the Braves front office and I said, I'd like to speak to Hank here. And they said, wait a minute. And I got put on hold and I got his secretary. And so his secretary, I said, I, I'd like to speak to Hank here because I'd like to tell him, don't listen to these knuckleheads. Like the city of Atlanta is pulling for him. Those people don't count. They don't matter. They're, they're not us. And we love Hank and we want, want him to want him to break the record. And so I got, so she was, she was like, well, hey, he's busy. I can't put you, I can't put him on the phone. So, but give me your address. <laughs> okay. I gave her my address and I gave her my address. And two weeks later, I got a letter in the mail from Hank Eric. And the letter said, my secretary told me about your call. I want you to know I really appreciate it, and I hope I can live up to your high expectations. 
and and I saved the letter. I still have it. It's on the old fashioned Braves Atlanta Fulton County Stadium stationery. Wow! And then you were at the game or saw something cool? All right. Oh my gosh! Don't. This is the bad part of the story. The next season was when he broke the record. Okay, and the next season early on, my dad got tickets for the family to go. Well. I, instead of going with them to the game, I went with some buddies on a camping trip. And we we had the radio on, and my brother's best friend got my ticket, and Hank hit 715 at that game. They all saw it. They all saw it. I heard it on the radio, a camping trip. I could have they been there. They don't have that letter. No, they don't. <laughs> what was it about Hank as you followed his career that you think really made him stand out? Man, you just don't understand. We don't understand. I don't understand what kind of pressure a man like that had to be going through with the, the racial tension that existed, that had interjected itself in that wonderful, incredible, you know, moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a what an incredible man that he was able to do what he did in spite of that tension yeah and i i can imagine i mean look how he treated you somebody he didn't even know imagine how he treated his family and his friends and a gentleman that probably gets a thousand emails but the fact that or you know messages right (laughs) that tell something about his character and i've heard stories and stories you know about him and who he is so that's that's a really cool story, and to hang on to that letter. I got the letter, and it is his signature. I mean, it, it is his signature in wet ink. So, so that that that's my baseball hero story. Let me let me tell the audience about swing and misses, okay? Please. Okay, so swing and misses. The 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 the, the times that I if I could go back and change anything, it would be those times that I got outside of my lane, that I veered off of the plan. And the plan really was, and my lane was, negotiating for baseball and football players, and then later only baseball players. But there was a couple of times, two or three times, when just for the sake, I don't know, trying to help somebody and just thinking, well, maybe this would be a good thing to try to do, not that I found myself wasting time representing one, at one one time it was this was after I had come back to Atlanta to start my own firm I found myself representing two comedians from from Britain named Cannon and Ball great guys Tommy Cannon and Bobby Ball awesome very popular in Britain I may add I took a trip over there and saw them at Blackpool didn't really get British humor, but Los British sure did. Sure. But what was I doing trying to bring them over here to see if the good people of Branson, Missouri, might find it funny? That was a big waste of time. That was a swing and a miss. Looking at it, what do you think it was? Why did you do it? I think I probably should have listened to... I probably should have asked, uh, you know, a, a, a mutual friend of ours who was one of my advisors, Tim Cash, what do you think about this? But I didn't. I was like, hey, what if, 
hey, what if Tommy Cannon and Bobby Ball get to be as famous over here? You know, maybe we'll expand Moy Sports into entertainment. I mean, it was just illogical thinking looking back on it. It was, I don't know, swinging at an Ephus pitch, a knuckleball, just looking silly. I was, I was talking to Billy Birds the other day, former big leaguer with the Oakland A's, and I asked him, who's the best power hitter he ever played with? He said, Aaron Judge. I go, did you ever compare yourself to Aaron and wonder why I couldn't do that? He goes, no. He goes, I'm a speed guy. I didn't try to be somebody I wasn't. And I'm like, no wonder why I didn't make it and you did. I tried, you know, I tried to sit in the batting cage and hit home runs as a five foot nine guy. And I think a lot of business owners and people in general, they think just because they're successful at one thing, they can be successful at other things. Yeah. And knowing your niche and knowing your skill set and staying in your lane is huge. And obviously you've done that throughout your career because your accomplishments in the game of baseball, you know, are second to none. And the way you've treated the people you've worked with is awesome. So thanks for sharing that. I know our listeners will be encouraged. Yeah. Stick with the plan, guys. Develop a plan. Stick with the plan. And I think what you mentioned too, have somebody else in your life that maybe can help ensure you do it. Cause I know I like to create plans. I don't like to follow them sometimes. And that's maybe why I have my wife to remind me, Hey, my plan is every Tuesday night at six o'clock, I take out that trash and I got the system. She reminds me to follow the system for sure. Well, good. Well, Mike, anything else to, to share with us? Maybe anything else you got going on right now? Any way anybody would go ahead and get in contact with you? Well, to, you know, to, I would encourage them to go to our website, moysports.com. And uh, anyone really wants to get in contact with me, they can reach me through that website. You know, the question, you know, what about, what does life look like today? I'm a really blessed, blessed man. I'm coming up on my 36th anniversary with my sweetheart, Sharon. We got three adult kids and married. I got five grandkids. I got six, I'm, Coming up on my 66th birthday, I got six guys in the big leagues that I'm privileged to work for. And, you know, just every day waking up, asking the Lord, you know, how can I serve you today? How can I make you Lord of my life? And, you know, maybe one day he'll be transitioning me into something other than sports agency, and that's fine. And the main thing is that I'm, I'm, I'm doing something productive and meaningful the kingdom of God the rest of my life and then hopefully enjoy him forever well Mike so many takeaways here I don't know how I'm going to summarize it for our listeners thank you for being here being open to having a conversation with us and I know our listeners are going to be blessed with our time today so thanks again for being a member and a guest on the dugout CEO podcast that was my pleasure and thanks for having me on Casey appreciate it dugout nation what a great time with Mike Moy what an amazing man and it is easy to see why he has reached the pinnacle of his profession here are three big takeaways that I got number one stay in your lane know what you're great at and stay in that niche and have others in your life that you can ask and call during big decisions that you have to make to see if they can give you advice number two do the right thing. If you serve people for the right reasons, money will come. If you make money the main thing, you're going to wake up one day with no friends and a lot of heartbreak. And that might mean you have to walk away from situations that could cost you money if it means doing the right thing. And number three, keep the issue the issue. Don't make it personal. You have disagreements in life. 
but they're disagreements around issues and not around people. Attack the issue, not the person. And when you're ever in a heated moment, negotiation, take a break. When emotions are running high, timeouts are good. Slow down, step back, and then come back. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP of what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. You can sign up by going to caseycavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app.